Good morning. It's good seeing everyone today. It's good being back here in Washington. Um, I know if you were here last week, you kind of heard us uh, talk a little bit about how we got here. My wife Jessica and I just moved back here from Florida, which I guess makes us crazy if you believe every single person who's told me that I'm crazy for moving to Illinois um, in the middle of winter, I guess at the end of winter. Um, but we, we were down there for four years. Before that, we were residents right here in town. I know many of you, if not by name, I know you by face. As I saw people coming in, I was like, oh man, that guy, I remember him. I, you know, uh, see you at Walmart or see you playing with the kids' sports or whatever it was. So it's so good to be back. It's kind of surreal um, when the opportunity presented itself for Jess and I and our family. We have five kids, and a couple of them are in here today, and there's a couple out there with, the, uh, with Alicia and Mike. And uh, when the opportunity presented itself for us to come back to our roots and work with one of the people, that I, you know, the, the, one of the couples that I think is the best in the world, you know, and I'm not just kissing up there because he's now my boss. I legitimately love Dave and Casey Jane. Like, we have always been impressed with them. I've known them for 20 years. I've never thought anything but the highest of them. And so when the opportunity came for us to come and be a part of the team here at Connect, um, we jumped at it, and we were willing to leave sunny Florida to come back to the Midwest. But we love Washington, so it really, there's nothing... People act like there's something wrong with us, but I assure you there is not. We just love Illinois that much. We really do. We love Washington. We're so glad to be back here with all of you. Uh, Today, as Dave mentioned, I'm going to be taking us through the last part of our Bad Boys of Easter um, series. And, you know, when I I hear the term bad boys, you know, that term has kind of changed in the past several years, hasn't it? There was a time where bad boys was legitimately bad boys, and then it became like, you know, the cool guys or whatever. You know, like I picture... Okay, this is so stupid. You're gonna, Arthur Fonzarelli, right? The Fonz. Does anyone think of our, the Fonz as a bad boy, right? A couple of us got that image. When, and so we're talking about a different kind of bad boy here. These are the guys that were uh, vilified in many cases based on decisions they made regarding how they were going to respond to Jesus during his last week on earth. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about them. Dave did an awesome job uh, setting up the previous two weeks as we're kind of leading into the ultimate story of the resurrection, which we're going to go into uh, next week. But over the past couple weeks, we've been talking about some of these guys who made decisions that put them on the wrong side of history. And they, they made choices. And, you know, for us, it's so easy to vilify them. We look at them and we think, man, they were stupid. Why did they choose to do that? Why did he choose to go against the Son of God? Why did he choose to betray Jesus, the Son of God? Didn't he know what was going to happen? The answer is no. We have the benefit of hindsight. So we look at the, the story of Judas Iscariot. We look at the story of Caiaphas, the high priest, somebody who was in high influence, as, as Dave talked about, somebody who was powerful, somebody who had a lot of, of uh, whatever that word is, where, where people just revered this guy in the community. And he was like the Pope of his day in that religious circle. And Jesus comes along and brings this threat to his authority, this threat to his power. And he's not willing to back down. He's not willing to take a lesser role so Jesus can take a greater role. And so he chooses to take an action that takes him to the wrong side of history. Last week, Dave talked about Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus's own disciples. And you would think that Jesus's best friends would be the ones who would have his back. And not 11 of them did, in a way, right? If you know this story, uh, they kind of scattered for a while, but they, kinda, they came back. But one of them scattered and never came back because he made a decision to betray Jesus because of the fact that he chose to, uh, you know, his reason for following him in the first place 
It was very selfish, as Dave talked about. And sometimes, you know, there's something in us. We can relate to these guys in some way. We can look at the decisions that they made, and we can see their motivations for why they made them. And even if we say today, I wouldn't have done that, we can see that, yeah, you know what? I may have struggled with some of the same feelings Caiaphas struggled with if I was in that position of power. If I was in Judas's place and I had followed Jesus because, you know, they're, you know, of what he would do for me, it might be difficult for me to accept him as the Savior that he turned out to be, uh, you know, who went to the cross. And so today we're going to look at a third bad boy of Easter. We're looking at a gentleman who, uh, a guy, a gentleman might be a stretch. From, from all accounts, this guy has never been painted in any picture as a gentleman. This guy was a barbarian of sorts. Um, this guy, and his name kind of resembles that, if you kind of know where I'm going. This guy was a, uh, a guy who was a criminal, and he was a convicted criminal, and he was somebody who his story in the Gospels only appears very briefly. Now, it's very briefly mentioned, but all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four mention this man because his role, even though brief, was so significant to how the whole Passion Week played out. And so today we're going to be looking at the role of Barabbas in the, in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. We'll do that in just a minute, but before we do, can we pray together? Father, we thank you today that we've had this great time in your presence. God, we thank you that your word speaks to us, that your word brings life, and that, you're, that, that when we look to your word, it's like a mirror that reflects things back at us. And help us today to view everything that is said in light of, God, what are you saying to me? How can I grow from this? How can I learn from this? And Father, I pray that you would empower me to speak very clearly and proclaim your truth in a way that is just, just it's, it's right there. It's easy to grab onto. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, a few years ago, I was working a job where I was traveling around a lot. And if any of you travel for work, you know that one of the things that you get to do is you get to rent cars when you're on the road. You know, so I was doing this job where I was traveling around. I was flying to different parts of the country, and then I'd rent a car. And one of the things about cars that you rent is that they feel different from your car, right? They feel different from how your car feels. And so people tend to have a lot of problems with the the cars that they rent when they're on business trips. You know, there are more accidents and things like this because... If you think about it, your car accelerates a certain way, and sometimes you can get in one of those cars that you're not familiar with and accelerate too fast and plow right into something, right? Or you brake too hard and somebody rear-ends you, or you brake too softly because your brakes feel different. I was driving this car this one time. I remember, it's ironic because I was living here in Washington at the time. This was 2009, so quite a long time ago. 2009, I was living here in Washington, and I, I had to work in Valrico, Florida, which is a suburb of Tampa. And it happens to be the suburb that Jess and I just moved back from um, a couple weeks ago. So it's so weird that we were down there, you know, that I was down there for this. But I, I was driving this car because Avis, I'd been renting with them for a long time. They started giving me these upgrades. And upgrades are great. Normally I'd get like a Ford Fusion or something like that, you know, Chevy Impala. Great car, but nothing too flashy. This one particular week I was in Florida and they upgraded me to a Chevy Camaro, which... Who's not going to take the Chevy Camaro when they offer it to you for the price of a Ford Fusion, right? So I'm driving this Camaro, feeling super, super cool, um, you know, down in Florida, you know, top down, I, think, I believe it was a convertible. Um, 
And I'm driving around, and I pull into this parking lot this one day. It was like the first or second day I had the car. And it, I remember it was extremely windy. Every once in a while down there in, in Florida, you get these, these winds blowing in off the, the, the gulf. And, and, and so I, I opened up the car door. I opened up the car door, and um, as you can imagine, the wind caught a hold of this big... So, so the car door is bigger than what I'm used to. I'm not a guy who drives two-door sports cars very often, except when Ava's upgrades me. You know, I drive minivans and a Honda CRV with 230,000 miles on it as of this morning. So that's what I drive, okay? I'm not driving any Camaro. Um, so this Camaro is, is my car for a few days, and I open up the door, and it's this big, heavy door. It's a lot longer than what I'm used to, so it's got a farther reach, right? And the wind catches my door and just pulls it as hard as it can right into the car next to me. Now, that's a sick feeling, right? You've probably done a little door ding in the past. You've hit the car next to you, and it makes you feel kind of bad and awful. Well, this wasn't a door ding. This was a, a door crushing, essentially, with this big, heavy door. I, I really, like, the, in the car next to me, it wasn't just, you know, like a regular car. This is a brand-new, top-of-the-line BMW with immaculate paint job. And so I'm sitting there thinking, oh no, of all the cars that I'm going to damage, it's the best car in this parking lot right now. And, and so the door, you know, and I knew that it had done damage because of how hard it hit. So I'm getting out and I, I'm, I'm pulling it. And as I pull it, the door even scratches it a little bit. So not only do I have a big dent that's got to be popped out, I've got a big old scratch that I caused, right? Now I'd like to be able to tell you that in that moment, this man of God, this pastor's first instinct was to write down my name and phone number and take responsibility for this, this accident that I had had. Nobody is around, right? You know, and, and so, so I, I'm thinking, I'd like to be able to tell you that I, I wrote my name down right away. That was my first impulse. I, I, I have to take responsibility. I have to own up to this, right? I have to pay this price because it's going to cost something to get this door fixed. You, you want to know something? It's not what happened, though. My first instinct was not, how do I take responsibility for this? My first instinct was, did anyone see that? You know, like, um, I, I started looking up on the, the, light, the lights out in the parking lot, trying to see if there were, park, you know, like security cameras. I'm sitting there thinking, is anyone, did anyone see that? Did it, is there any way I can get caught if I just drive around to a different spot and park over there, and then this guy never knows it was me, Right? That was my thought. I'm ashamed to say that, but I, I toyed with that thought for a moment. But then, you know, my conscience got the best of me. I've always been someone who uh, I, I really try to do the right thing. So I, I, I finally, I just made the decision. I said, I got to do this. It's going to cost me a lot of money. I didn't have very much money at that time at all. Um, this guy's driving a brand new BMW, so I'm kind of thinking, well, he's got more money than I do, you know, so maybe he can just pay it. But I, so what I did was, of course, I wrote my name. I wrote my phone number. I didn't want to leave my insurance information on there. I said, please give me a call. I'm so sorry. I dented your car. I scratched your car. I'm going to pay to fix it. Please give me a call, and we'll get this fig figured out. And so I go about my day, and a, it's an hour or two hours later, I get a phone call. It's a local number there from Tampa, 813 area code, and I knew it had to be the guy. I pick it up, hello, and it's the guy. He says, hey, I found your note on my car. I said, you know, my heart sinks, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, great, here we go. And he says, um, you left a note. And I said, yeah, I, I'm so sorry. Let me just, please, before you get mad at me and whatever, he's like, no, you left a note. And he went on and he said, uh, I, I didn't, I wouldn't expect people to leave a note in that situation. You would like to think that most people would, but he said, 
I don't think most people would. And I was th- sitting there thinking, yeah, and I, I, I never would have thought of anything other than leaving a note, right? And uh, that's the kind of guy I am. And so I'm sitting there listening to him, and he goes on and on, and he's like, he's blown away. He's like, you left a note. Like, like you knew that that was going to cost you significant money. You could have gotten off, and nobody would have ever known it. <clears throat> and you could have gotten away with it, but you left a note. And I said, yeah, um, let me give you my insurance. I pull out my insurance card. He says, no, 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 no. He says, listen. He says, I am so impressed that you actually took the step of responsibility and had some integrity. I'm not going to take your insurance information. I'm not going to take any money from you. I'm going to take care of it myself. I just want you to know that I really appreciate you being honest in this situation. And that was it. That was the conversation. And (laughs) you're all thinking, boy, if I ever have an incident like that, I hope I run into that guy because... (laughs) That guy was like above and beyond cool about this entire situation. He had every right to freak out on me. He had every right to be angry with me. He had every right to to be disappointed with my clumsiness. And yet he's so focused on this other issue. And the, 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 the crazy thing was this man was willing to pay a price that he didn't deserve to pay. And I was the one who deserved to pay the price. And I'm getting off the hook scot free. That's so crazy to me. The man that we're looking at today can totally relate to that particular incident. His, you know, the cost was so much higher than a few hundred bucks for a dented door. But the man that we're talking about today, Barabbas, could totally relate to a situation like this. In Matthew chapter 27, we're going to have it on the screen behind me. The the gospel writer Matthew, who's a a disciple of Jesus, he's writing about this... um, this man in this moment, and just so you know, this is the, the setup to Jesus' crucifixion. This is the trial. This is a public trial. So there are people there. There are religious leaders there. It's, it's out in front of Pilate's house. Now, keep in mind, the, the governing system of that day was this. The Jews were not free, autonomous people. They were governed by the Romans who had essentially overthrown them uh, generations before. And so the, the Romans are in charge. And so everything that happens in Judea, which is the land where the Jews live, everything that happens there has to be approved by the Romans. And so the Romans are the only ones that can approve of a death penalty. They're the only ones who can say, yes, this man deserves to die. The Jews bring the charges against the, the, the um, alleged, um, you know, the the person. I can't even think of the word. Uh, and uh, and, and the, the Romans say, yeah, he's guilty. This is his pe- sentence and his penalty. So this is, that, this is the setting that we're going to today. Matthew 27, 15. It was the governor's custom. So that this is the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. It was his custom every year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to, to the crowd, anyone they wanted. So this would have been one of those things. Since you guys, since I'm the Roman governor, and since you're the, the people that I govern, I want to get favor back from you. So what I'm going to do as the Roman governor is I'm going to do things that I can, little gestures that will go a long way to showing mercy, to showing, uh, you know, that I'm a good guy. And so this would have been one of those things. So Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has had this custom in place where he tells them, you get to choose one of these prisoners who is on death row, and you get to decide his fate. You get to send him home to his family. And so, and so in verse 16, Matthew writes, this year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that, that morning, he asked them, 
which one of them do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And then Matthew adds this, and in the Bible that I read, in the English translation, remember this would have been written in Greek uh, 2,000 years ago, um, but in the translation from that original Greek to what we have today, it's a parenthetical phrase where Matthew kind of comments, and he says this. He says, he knew, meaning Pilate knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. This goes back to what Dave talked about with Caiaphas, the high priest, the man of power, the man who had this influence in the community, especially among the religious folks. And he's, he's, he's jealous because Jesus is starting to get this crowd following him that Caiaphas can't seem to uh, uh, let go of. And so there's all this stuff going on. And so, so Barabbas, he, he's, he's this guy who appears in the Gospels for a very brief period of time. And we don't know a ton about him, but here's what we do know about him based on the, the gospel accounts. Number one, we know that Matthew tells us he was a notorious, infamous murderer. He was a murderer, okay? Murder, in most people's minds, is right up there with the worst kind of crimes that anyone can commit. To, to take someone else's life is as bad as it gets. Secondly, what we know about him is that he was an insurrectionist, which would mean that he was a rioter. He had caused uh, the, the people of that area to rise up against the Romans, and he had been like somebody who was causing, stirring up riots, okay, and violence against the government. We also know, based on this account, that he was a, a notorious, or another translation might say infamous, uh, criminal. In other words, he was well-known and he was hated for his crimes. Think of somebody in the, the realm of, you know, the Boston Marathon bomber. Somebody who everyone knows and almost everyone despises this young man because of what he did, the choice that he made. This is who Barabbas is. He's an insurrectionist, a murderer. He's a well-known and disliked uh, criminal who is on death row. And here we have this pivotal moment in history. Here we have, on, on, in the center, we have the judge, okay? We have the judge. We have Pontius Pilate standing in the middle. We have Jesus on the one side. We have Barabbas on the other. It's this pivotal, pivotal moment. And so let's, let's look at... Um, Another gospel account. This is Luke. Luke was a different gospel, uh, writer of the gospels. He, he had done a lot of historical uh, digging into things and, and a very educated man. And, and Luke tells us a little bit more. He tells us, first of all, that this is actually the second trial that, he, that Jesus has before Pontius Pilate. Before this, he had already been tried once by Pilate at the beginning of Luke chapter 23. He'd already come to Pilate and he had already been, Pilate said, asked him, you know, here are the charges against you. This is what, you know, and went through the whole, you know, the whole process. And Pilate says, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Why did you send him to me? He didn't do anything wrong. And so he sends him back to the king, which would have been Herod Antipas, who was like one of the, one of the Herods. There were a lot of King Herods. It was a dynasty, as, as Dave might say. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a dynasty uh, of the, the world at that time. There was you know, Herod Agrippa and Herod Antipas and Herod the Great, and there was all these Herods, and this is one of the Herods, and he was under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, the governor, it sounds like king would be better than governor, right? Like title-wise, like if you're pay, playing chess or something, you're gonna, the king's going to be better, right? But this, this was different. The Pontius Pilate is the governor of Rome, so he's 
the trump card, and then down here you've got the, uh, the king, which would have been just a regional leader. He doesn't have the authority to, condense, to condemn someone to death, so he has to send him back. So, so Antipas, Herod Antipas, gets the, Jesus on the rebound, so to speak, and he's listening to the crimes against him, and he's, he's talking them through, you know, like, and he comes to the same conclusion. I don't see anything that this guy has done wrong, deserving of the death penalty, but the religious leaders wouldn't let it go. They wanted this man, they were bloodthirsty at this point. They wanted Jesus to die. They wanted him to suffer. They wanted him to be made of an, an example of, you can't come against our power, you can't come against our system, and it's going to cost you if you do. And so Herod says, I don't know what to do. I'm going to send him back to the guy who, you know, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. this. This decision is too hard for me to make. These people are bloodthirsty. If I make the wrong decision, they're going to come after me and my crown. Uh, so I'm not willing to make this call. So he sends him back to King Herod. King Herod gets him for the, or excuse me, to uh, Pontius Pilate. He gets him for the second time, the governor of Rome. And this is what we find in verse 13 through 25 of Luke's uh, chapter 23. He says this, Then Pilate called together, this is the second trial, he, Pilate called together the leading priests the, and the religious leaders along with the people. So this is a public hearing. And he announced his verdict. He said, You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly, on this point, and in your presence, and I, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion, and he sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls, calls for the death penalty. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I, ha I, have flogged, I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. So Herod is announcing his judgment, and, and, and he says right there, you can see we've got it highlighted for you. I don't see any reason why this man should be given the death penalty. What he says is, I can see you're bloodthirsty. I can see you're frustrated. I'll, I'll draw a little blood. We'll have him beaten severely, and then we will release him to go on and live the remainder of his life. You, you know, hoping that that would appease this, this feeling that they have for justice. In verse 18, we see that that is not enough. That is not enough. The people, it says, Then a mighty roar ro rose from among the crowd, and with one voice they it, shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas, here's Luke's commentary. Barabbas, this is who he was. He was in prison for taking part in an insurrection uh, uh, in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. In verse 20, Pilate argued with them. You know, he's like... <laughs> Come on, people, you're not being reasonable. You're not hearing me. He has no, there's, there's nothing that we need to accuse this man of. There's nothing he is guilty of that deserves death. And he says to him, because, uh, Pilate argued with them because the, uh, excuse me, it's so hard to read. <laughs> because, where am I at? Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. That's what it is. Because he wanted to release Jesus. He has this this vision, he has this idea. This man is a free man. We need to set him free. Verse 21, but they kept shouting. They kept shouting. They said, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder. This is such I mean, this is so interesting. The mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they requested, he released Barabbas, the guilty insurrectionist murderer. 
But Jesus was turned over to them to do with whatever they pleased. So this is, this is the incredible irony of this situation. The irony is this. Five days earlier, on Palm Sunday, this would have been Good Friday. This would have been the Friday that, on which Jesus was crucified. And five days earlier, Jesus rides into the same town where these same people waved palm branches at him and essentially called him the Son of God. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were honoring him as a coming king. He rode in on a donkey, Palm Sunday, five days earlier. And here is that same crowd calling for his head, calling for his execution. It's so ironic how quickly people turn when somebody of influence begins speaking something to them and they can just be so fickle and blown by the, the, you know, whichever way the wind is blowing. So I ask you this question today. I ask you this question, which of these two men, this is this, is this moment, I, I don't know if we have any uh, judges in the room, I don't know if we have any defense attorneys or any prosecutors, I don't know if we have anyone of that sort in this room, but I don't think it takes that kind of a background to understand what's going on here. On one side, you've got Jesus, and you've got Jesus who Pilate himself says, I find him innocent. Now think of the difference between being announced innocent and pronounced not guilty. It's a big difference, right? Innocent means, I mean, he has done nothing wrong. Not guilty is what O.J. Simpson was, right? <laughs> you know? You can be found not guilty and not be innocent because the, the, the evidence against you was tainted and they can't accept it in a court of law. And so O.J. is out running free even though nobody believes that O.J. Simpson was innocent. Or if you do, you need to watch more... Uh, documentaries about it because he's not innocent. Um, but I mean, so there's a difference. Pilate says this guy is innocent. He says he's innocent. And on one side, you've got this innocent man. And on the other side, you've got this guilty, convicted murderer, insurrectionist. Someone has stirred up violence against the government this is a problem child over here. This is a troublemaker, a rabble rouser on this side. And you've got this guy who went around preaching peace and love and preaching about God's kingdom and, and, and healing people who were sick and raising a couple people from the dead here and there. And, and you've got this guy over here who's been helping people, who's been uh, uh, bringing value to, to the lives of the people he's interacted with. And this guy over here has only caused problems. And, and we're at this pivotal moment and we ask ourselves, who deserved the death penalty? Was it Jesus, the innocent, peaceful man who went around helping people? Or was it the rabble rouser who had stirred up so much and murdered people? You see, it's so easy for us to look at this man and say, well, boy, what a criminal, what a terrible man he is, what a horrible person, because his crimes were so terrible. But you want to know something? From the gospel perspective, from the perspective of God, you want to know something? There's not a lot of difference between what Barabbas did and what I've done. I've never murdered anyone, but I've got my own junk that I've had in my life. I've had my own sin. I've had my own weaknesses. I've had my own things that have broken covenant with God, broken my relationship with God, damaged uh, and gone against his standards. And so it's so easy for us to vilify him. But here's what I want you to understand today. When I look at this man, 
This is what I realized. I am Barabbas. You see, in this story, he was absolutely a historical figure. He was absolutely a man who existed in time and did certain things and walked this earth. He was absolutely a historical figure, 100%. But more than that, on a bigger picture, I look at this story and I see myself standing there next to Jesus. The judge in between, the innocent Jesus on one side, and then me, guilty of sin on this other side. You see, what, what, what the gospel tells us, what the New Testament tells us in Romans chapter 3, is that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Every one of us, from the, you know, from the murderer to the pastor to the pope, right? Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Verse, uh, a couple chapters later, the same man, Paul, writes this. The wages of sin is death. What that means is what we deserve for our sin is essentially spiritual death, which is separation from God and eternal damnation apart from him. And so I look at this story and I see Barabbas who's a murderer and it's so easy again to vilify him for being this bad guy who made this terrible choice to murder another human being, to take their life. And I see myself over there on the same side as him. Guilty. The charges against me have been read. Everything that has been read against me has been true. I am guilty of of sinning against God and breaking that relationship and that covenant with him. And on the other side, we've got this innocent man. Here's what happened in that moment. Here's what happened. 700 years before this moment, where not this moment today, but the moment that we're speaking of with Barabbas and Jesus on the chopping block, right? 700 plus years before that event, a prophet spoke of that very moment. He said this. He said, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced, get this, for our rebellion, He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. You understand what the writer is saying? 700 years before, he says, in that moment, the people of the earth, the people in the crowd saw Jesus and they thought he was going to the cross guilty for his sins. But the prophet said that the day would come where he would go to the cross, he would die, not for his sins, but for ours, right? Barabbas is on this other side, and he's looking across. The, <laughs> there's this scene in The Passion of the Christ, if you've ever seen that movie. It's, it's, it's so great. Up until this moment, um, you know, Barabbas is horrible. He's just he's sticking his tongue out. He's mocking the crowd. He's doing, ah, you know, just doing this horrible stuff. And you're just like, yeah, go ahead and kill that guy. You know, he's terrible. Um, and, uh, and at one point during the, uh, the when, when the verdict is read and Pilate says, okay, Barabbas, you're free. Jesus, you're going to the cross. There's this moment where Barabbas just shoots a look across at his counterpart over there, and it's this change in his countenance. His face just drops. He's like, holy cow, that that guy's taking my place, and I'm taking his place? He's innocent. He deserves to go free. I'm guilty. I deserve to go to the cross, but we kind of switched. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is Jesus became what I am so that I could become what he is. Everything that he earned 
in his perfect life, I enjoy the benefit of everything that I earned through my sin and my selfishness, he suffered the penalty for. It's this crazy exchange. It is completely, completely unfair, but it's exactly what God had planned from the beginning. See, I wonder what happened to Barabbas. I wonder if he went on from there and he was like a different guy. We don't know. We don't see him come up in the Bible anymore after this. He goes out of the scene just as quickly as he came in. We don't know anything more about him. But I like to believe this. This is all speculation. This isn't me saying this is what God said. This is me thinking. Uh, I think Barabbas probably had a change in his life. I think he went on from there and he became a believer in this man who had taken his place. I think someday we're going to run into Barabbas in heaven and we're going to be able to say, what was that like, that moment? And then we're going to be able to say, you know what? You were just like me. I was just like you. We've all sinned. We've fallen short. We deserve death. But yet Jesus took our place so that we could take his. Isn't that crazy? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that this morning, Lord, uh, we've been given this gift that we do not deserve. We've been given the gift of grace and mercy and love. God, what we deserve, the Bible is very clear, for our sin, what we deserve is death. What we deserve is separation from you. But you weren't willing to leave us separated and on an island apart from you. You love us so much that you sent your son to come and do what we could not in living a perfect life and bringing us into relationship with you so that we could enjoy the benefits of the price he paid. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment for my sin so that I could have the life that you deserved, that you earned through your perfection. We thank you for this all. In Jesus' name, amen.